There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. Really excited today because we have a returning guest. We have with us Mark Baer, who is a professor of Middle Eastern and European history at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He's a prize winning author on several associated themes, but but you heard him a few weeks ago um, and he did a magnificent episode on based on his new book, which is uh, a sweeping history of the 600 year Ottoman Empire. But we because we were obviously can't talk about 600 years in one podcast, can we, Mark? So we decided to do the first half and now he's back to do the second half of the Ottoman Empire. So we've done the rise and now I guess we're going to go towards the fall, aren't we? Well, fall, but it's a long fall. The Ottomans last until 1922. So there's, there's a lot to cover. There is. It's not going to be a five minute podcast, people. Don't worry. Uh, so last time, if you haven't heard the first episode, do go back. because You're really missing out because it was brilliant. Last time we talked about the foundation of the Ottoman Empire and we left people hanging uh, with the Ottomans ruling a large empire in the mid 1500s. Uh, is it fair to say that this is the high point for them? So what challenges in that case begin to present themselves in the second half of the 16th century that compromise like even more Ottoman expansion? Like any empire, at a certain point, the empire faces a constellation of changes, internal and external. And so the problem for us as historians is to disentangle what the chronicles are saying to us from what's actually happening. This is the problem every historian faces. So what we have from the end of the 16th century and all the way into the 17th century are a number of griping bureaucrats and intellectuals <laughs> say that everything is going wrong. And what they're really saying is that the system is changing and they're the losers in the change. These are people who believed in the Ottoman system of meritocracy that took in converts, trained them to be the leading bureaucrats and leading warriors of the regime. And for the first three centuries was quite successful in doing that. Now, at the end, by the end of the 16th century, there were new economic forces, there were new rivals, there were technological changes, there were internal dynastic changes. And these are all changes. We don't have to use the word decline. But yes. the system that had been established by the 14th century was changing. And so what we have to think about is how these changes then made it into 
almost a new empire and one in which there were winners and losers. Yeah, I think it's safe to say, isn't it, that we're not going to present this as a, a 200 year free fall because that's not what it was. Um, so let's talk about some of the, the thing, the changes in the world outside the Ottoman Empire as well that begin to affect perhaps or at least put up some kind of opposition to the more expansion. So one of those is the emergence of Russia. But doesn't the discovery of the new wor- world also have a big like economic impact on the Ottoman Empire as well? Well, as far as economic impact, what we have to remember is that the Ottomans prior to the end of the 16th century had a idealized closed economic system in which all everything was controlled by the imperial capital by the regime and this was the, this was the setup now in the 16th into the 17th century you have new economic factors you have new nouveau riche you have people who are earning outside of that closed economic system for the first time so you have new merchants you have new people in the provinces who are amassing wealth and this um, causes a lot of consternation at the center. So, at, so originally, the way it was set up was that officials were sent out from the center to the provinces. And if we think about the army, for example, they were required to go on campaign when called, and they were given grants of land based on how many soldiers, I mean, the, the larger the grant, the more soldiers and arms they were required to bring to an imperial campaign. So this was a closed system. But by this point, late 16th, early 17th century, we have the influx of cash. So actual uh, coin, actual money. And this is changing everything around. And this, is, this money is enabling individuals in the provinces to then amass their own private armies. And with their private armies, they are challenging central rule and carving out autonomous regions throughout the provinces of the empire. So tell me then about Russia. So how does Russia impact? So got the reign of Ivan the Terrible, haven't we? And then we're moving in in the beginning of the 17th century to the establishment of the Romanovs as well. So before Russia's just been a, a mess and entirely concerned with its own um, internal strife, isn't it? But things change. Russia is growing and ever becoming an ever larger threat to the Ottomans, a mm. threat in the Black Sea, a threat in the Caucasus, a threat around the other end of the Black Sea as well into southeastern Europe. So this is moving into the 18th century that Russia is constantly rising and Russia is constantly battling the Ottomans and the Ottomans keep losing. I think there are about eight eight wars between the Ottomans and the Russians from the 18th century to the end of empire. And the Ottomans will just about lose every single one of them. So this is an external threat rather than being, because they, they will come to terms with central Europe by the end of the 17th century. But moving into the 18th century, Russia is this new dangerous threat. But the other thing I need to mention is military transformation. Yes. So in, in the early centuries, again, they had this closed system where they brought in They had a levy of Christian youth, Christian boys, brought to the center, circumcised, converted, trained in the Islamic languages, based on their abilities, rose either in the administration or in the military. So this was a very successful way for the Ottomans to recruit and retain an elite military, especially the Janissaries, the elite infantry, 
that was able that enabled the Ottomans to to be so successful, to stay in power, to conquer new territory. They also were always innovative in giving the Janissaries the latest in um, firepower, the, the latest um, actual artillery. So this was in the early centuries. But by the in the 17th century, this levy of Christian boys ends. So they're no longer just recruiting exclusively Christian boys and making them into the elite. The Janissary Corps grows and it's now open to, in a way that wasn't before, to people who were born Muslims. So the army, the Janissaries are expanding, but it's no longer an elite corps. And this causes a lot of concern, a lot of upset because people believe that the, the true Ottoman way was this recruitment of, of slaves to make them into the elite fighting force. But now any person, and free people as well are entering into the military, into the elite corps, and this causes a lot of opposition. We will come back to the military in a second, but just in this period as well, we have, I think this sounds awesome, but I'm keen to know if historians see this as a bad thing. Uh, what I love the sound of this. What is the Sultanate of Women? This is a, a concept that was given to us by a modern Turkish historian writing in the Turkish Republic, I think in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And this is the idea that the system, the regime was sound when it had strong male leaders, the sultans, such as Mehmed II, the conqueror, or Suleiman. And this misogynistic um, idea is that once women were running the show, then the empire inevitably declined. But what they are missing is that from early on, royal women had an important, play to, um, important role to play in the palace. Remember in the early centuries, mothers of, of princes, the future sultans, were sent out to the provinces to help raise their son, to train their son in the arts of war and governance as they were regional governors. Then they would race back to the capital when the father, the sultan passed away and battled out on the battlefield with their brothers and the, the last ones um, standing would become the new sultan. So royal mothers were always important. Now, what we have in the, especially in the early 17th century, is a point where the sultans who are enthroned are young, they're underage, or they're considered mad. We don't know if they're clinically crazy, but this is how chroniclers write about them. So when you have an underage boy as sultan, then the mother is the regent, obviously. So in the early 17th century, you have these strong royal women who are actually making the key governmental decisions. Now, they're not officially the ruler. This isn't like Catherine the Great or something. These women are behind the scenes. They're in the palace. And they even will stand behind a curtain when the son, their, their sultan, the Sultan is meeting with his ministers, his viziers. They'll stand behind the curtain and they'll say, well, I think we should repair these fortresses because the Italians are going to attack us in the Dardanelles soon. So they're actually making these important decisions also about who to hire, who to fire and so on. And so there was a backlash. There was a backlash at the time. There was a backlash by modern historians saying that this wasn't right, that, that there shouldn't have, women shouldn't have been making all these decisions. What do you think? 
I think it was a natural evolution of the system. I mean, I, you know, these women, again, they were important from the beginning. And it's too bad that they were never made sultana uh, in in law. It's in other other dynasties, such as the Russian dynasty, they're competitive. Of course, women ruled in their own name. These women were ruling in the names of their of their sons. Did they do a good job? Well, that's that's a that's a good question because there was so much happening at the time. Yeah. In it up until the mid 16th century, it seems that there were strong sultans, and they seem to have been the center of power, and they seem to have kept these other competing centers of power at bay. So the janissaries, the jurists, other members of their family. But by the end of the 16th century, there were these multiple power centers that were competing. So again, the viziers, the ministers, would would form one group. The janissaries would form another. The jurists, so the the muftis and so on, and then the royal the royal family. So this is about four different competing power centers, and they would unite with each other in different constellations to make or break a sultan. So this this was the actual situation. Again, we don't have to say it's a decline, but we do have to say that what we see is a is a massive change where before the sultan, it was not divine, but was above other men and was seen to have embodied the entire dynasty. By this point, after the first murder of a sultan, Osman II, uh, young Osman, after he was murdered in 1622, then this has changed. And now we see that we see a more modern government where it's the ministers and the jurists and the, the dynasty together running the, uh, the administration and the, and the empire. Just before we start, because we are going to talk about this string of military defeats, just before we do that, we have a tendency or have had a tendency to look east and assume that sort of life is primitive in comparison to the west. Uh, we did talk about how the Renaissance, if you like, that affected Istanbul too, it affected the Ottoman Empire. What's life like in the 17th century in the Ottoman Empire? Hugely variable, I'm guessing. Hugely variable, because are we speaking of rural areas? Are we speaking of nomadic areas? Are we speaking of Constantinople or Istanbul, which is at the time still probably the biggest, one of the biggest cities in Europe, perhaps as many as half a million people, people from every conceivable race and ethnicity. It's, it's, so it's hard to generalize. We have people on islands, we have people in the remote mountain regions, we have Kurds, we have Armenians, we have Arabs, we have Bosnians, we have Serbians, we have Turks, we have Jews, we have, it's a whole constellation of, of peoples. Are they less literate than their Western counterparts? Are they poorer? Do they eat as well? Or are we looking at sort of a, a myth that it's more primitive the further east you go? I think it's a myth because remember that until the 18th century, the wealthiest and most populous and most significant kingdoms on the planet were China and in South Asia and in the Islamic world. So perhaps before the 18th century, but but certainly if you were to look at the the world, if a you know a famous historian once wrote that if a, a Martian were to come to the world in around the year 1550, the 16th century, they would think that the world was becoming Muslim. They would think that they would see that the the most important scientists, the most important writers, the most beautiful literary and artistic cultures, the most amazing architecture in, in the world 
according to this historian, was in the Islamic Islamic part of the world. So, so we have to bear that in mind. And India and China would maintain their, their wealth. It was only in the 18th century that we in this country um, began to surpass um, those Eastern lands in terms of, of wealth. You mentioned these military defeats and that there are something like eight wars, I think you said, going forward through into the 18th century. Uh, the, uh, there's a significant blow, isn't there, in 1683? What happens? Well, 1683 is, is, of course, the second siege of Vienna. And this, this, this was a turning point indeed. Now, in 1529, Suleiman had tried to take Vienna and had failed. But it wasn't a really a turning point. It was a relief for people in Central Europe, of course, but it wasn't a, a turning point for the Ottomans because unsuccessful in Vienna in 1529, Suleiman then turned east and took Baghdad within a few years. So the Ottoman Empire continued to expand and that wasn't a, that wasn't a major turning point really. And both, the thing is, is that both of these failed sieges were caused by two main reasons. And the reasons were quite um, mundane. The first reason was um, the distance traveled. So the Ottomans had a natural um, distance beyond which they couldn't hold territory. So something like 1800 kilometers, they couldn't, they could attack Tabriz, which was the Safavid capital, and they could sack it and loot it, but they couldn't stay there through the winter. Same was true with Vienna. They could attack Vienna, but they, they, but they could only campaign in the spring and summer. And the autumn, if you've been to Vienna, it's actually, I spent a winter there, it was absolutely freezing cold. Um, autumn and winter comes early in Central Europe. So the Ottomans, both sieges were launched in with, in, with uh, inhospitable climates. So the rain, the flooding, the snow, the cold, already was a, a setback. But then it, for both sieges, the Ottomans, had some poor planning as well. They weren't able to arrive at the walls of the city with their biggest guns or with their um, all the material they needed. So, so these were technological limitations for both of them. Now, what happened in 1683 was that it was a long and it was a devastating siege. And the people of Vienna, as is well known, uh, suffered greatly from the attacks, from death, from disease, especially as they were as they were surrounded almost by the Ottomans. And we also know that the Ottomans were close to conquering the city in 1683, but that thanks to this uh, this Polish nobleman, uh, Sobieski, there was this relief force that was able to rout the Ottomans and cause them to flee without having taken the city. Now, both sides saw in the failed 1683 conquest moral lessons Again, it was a military um, siege that failed, but both in the West and in the East, in the Ottoman Empire, they saw this as a great moral, for the, for, in the West, a moral victory, in the East, a great moral defeat. And again, it caused a lot of, a lot of, a lot of griping, and it led to the downfall of Mehmed IV, the Sultan who had launched the siege. And then, as you mentioned, more wars and not successful wars for the Ottoman Empire. So talk us through why they keep going back and why they keep fighting. Is is it on them or or is it external threats to them that cause the wars? Um, And why do they consistently fail? 
Well, the Ottomans have lost their technological edge. I right. mean, in earlier centuries, they had a military technological edge. They've been surpassed by this point in the 17th century, matched and surpassed by other European powers. And Russia, as it rises, is reforming, is creating new cities. Uh, the city we call today, well, Petersburg again. When I was when I was growing up, it was Leningrad. And when I visited in the 80s, it was called Leningrad. So they, they're building new cities. They're creating new navies, new armies. And by the 18th century, into the 19th century, the Russians are even able to, they launch one naval excursion that comes all the way around Europe and attacks the Ottomans on the West Coast near Izmir. So so this, this shows you um, the rise of the Russians. And the Ottomans, beginning in the 19th century, the early 19th century, Ottoman intellectuals, the dynasty, the administrators, the army, they see that something is wrong. They've lost their edge. They begin to lose territory, especially in these clashes with the Russians. And they try to come up with a way to save the empire. And so the last, let's say, 80 years of Ottoman history, we see a different constellation of, of different figures who in different ways are trying to save the empire. And we can always, we could go all the way back to Selim III who comes to power in 1789. All the way from 1789 to 1922, as I explained in the book, they're trying to reform the military. They're trying to find a way to make their subjects into completely loyal again to the Sultan. And they're trying to save the territory of the empire. Most of these efforts will fail miserably. All these reforms will, in the end, go down in flames when the Ottomans side with the Germans and are defeated in the First World War anyway. But it's interesting to think about all the different paths that might have been, because some of the reform efforts involved democratization, constitutionalism, and parliamentary democracy. Other of the reforms involved authoritarianism, near dictatorship, and repression. Whether democratic or repressive, none of these reforms really worked to save the empire. I, one of the ones that stuck out for me is, as you say, Tanzimat period, as we approach the 20th century. Is this one of those what might have been? Well, this was a, the reform. This is the name we give. This, it means reordering or the, the reordering. Let's call it that in English. And this was the attempt by a series of sultans and administrations and bureaucrats to, to save the empire. I can't say it. It's exactly what they said. And so how are they going to save the empire? There are different views on this. And one of the views was that, well, we need to, we need to, we need to adapt all the latest military technologies and all the latest uh, ideas from Western Europe in order to, to and Russia and, and Prussia to make ourselves sound again. So one, one problem the Ottomans found moving into the 18th century and to the end of the empire was how to make their subjects loyal, how to keep them loyal. Because there were competing ideas since the American Revolution and the French Revolution. There were ideas of nationalism and, and self-government and uh, sovereignty of peoples that well, it depends on your perspective, you could say infected subjects of the empire or inspired subjects of the empire. And it wasn't just the Greeks and the Armenians and the Serbs and the Arabs, but also the Turks and Kurds themselves began to think about what does it mean to rule ourselves? What, where is 
the fatherland. In the 19th century, the concept of fatherland emerges in the Ottoman Empire. Where is the fatherland and who belongs to it? And again, there are different answers given. One concept was that everyone who swears allegiance to the Sultan belongs here and should be made equal. And we see legal equality granted in the 19th century to all Ottoman subjects. So prior to 1839, by law, there was a hierarchical system by which Muslims had more rights than Christians and Jews, and free people had more rights than slaves, and men had more rights than women. Now, the latter two categories weren't going to change, but beginning in 1839, with the passing of a decree, which was made more explicit in 1856, the fact was that all of a sudden, Muslims, Christians, and Jews had equal legal rights. There was no difference between subjects. So this was an attempt by the administration to bring all subjects in to the empire and to, and to, to build a, an empire in which everyone felt they had an equal part. Because, as I mentioned, there were these counter forces of nationalist groups who were saying, well, actually, we're Greek. And, well, Greece has become independent. Half of Greece is independent. And we're Serbians. Well, Serbia was granted autonomy and then later would be granted independence. So the empire is beginning to break off. And partly is, this is through the desire of these groups themselves. Partly it's the effect of the Russians and other foreign powers helping those groups fight against the Ottomans. So, so this is happening. So the Ottomans are losing territory. They're losing subject peoples. And so in the middle of the 19th century, they seek to bring them back and to get by guaranteeing them equality. That's brilliant. It's vastly more forward thinking um, than Austria, which is, well, Austria, definitely Hungary, um, which have just bullheadedly do not want to accept um, or change the nature in which other nationalities, because we are entering the age of nationalism, aren't we? So other peoples like the Romanians within their empire or the Serbians, they are under the thumb and they stay there and there is no equal treatment. It's very different to that in the Ottoman Empire. Well, so they're, they're trying to, in the middle of the 19th century, they're trying to, to bring people in after these, these, these experiences losing Serbia and losing Greece. So, so this is what they try. They try this, this concept of Ottomanism. And beyond that, there's a group of Ottoman Muslim intellectuals who, who also link American revolutionary and French revolutionary ideas with, with Islam. So they bring together enlightenment ideas and Islam, and they advocate for parliament, and they advocate for a constitution. They still want an Islamic regime in a sense. They still want the Sultan to be the most powerful figure, but they still foresee having elected people and a and in this way saving the empire. Now their ideas would become very influential. They're called the young Ottomans. And their ideas would stimulate, in fact, the opening of the first Ottoman parliament in 1876, 1877, and, and the granting of the first constitution at that time as well. So, so in, in the third quarter of the 19th century, the Ottomans are moving toward a more representative, more inclusive, more democratic, more enlightened. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So tell us then what happens in 1878. Well, of course, in 1878, the new Sultan, Abdul Hamid II, who had opened parliament and had promulgated the constitution two years earlier, closes them both. He abrogates the constitution and he closes the parliament. This was partly because there were several coup attempts against him. This was partly because there was yet another cataclysmic Russia, uh, Russian war in 1877. This war was bigger than anything, worse than anything the Ottomans had faced before. Here they're losing, they're losing so much of their empire. The foreign troops are so close to the imperial capital. They're forced to give up so many core areas of their empire that then they're going to have to decide what to do next. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Then does what, what does happen next? Well, I mean, look at what they have to give up. In, in initially, in 1878, they have to give up Serbia, Romania, and Montenegro to independence. They have to make Bosnia and Herzegovina autonomous. This is where, autonomous in inverted commas. Right. <laughs> Hungary. Yeah. But also, this, this treaty, this ceasefire, really, from 1878, envisions a massive Bulgaria, probably bigger than any Bulgaria that any Bulgarian had ever imagined for themselves before. And this would be Russian-occupied. And if you've been to Turkey, Bulgaria is right there, right? Bulgaria is right Right. Yeah. So Russian occupied Bulgaria stretching from the Black Sea to the Aegean. I mean, this is this is beyond any wild Bulgarian dream. And the list goes on and on. They were supposed to agree to all these things. Now, instead, there was another treaty signed a bit later, which in which these these powers had to back off a bit. But because Britain had stepped in, they demanded Cyprus as a as a as a reward for helping the Ottomans gain back part of Bulgaria. But the problem is that Russia, Russia was there. Russia was not only there occupying part of Bulgaria, I mean, the Ottomans got Macedonia back, but still, but the Ottomans lost one third of their territory because of the war of 1877. And and Russia was controlling much of Northeastern Anatolia. So 
This is the situation the Ottomans found themselves in in 1878. And this is the context in which we have perhaps the last great strong Ottoman ruler, an Islamist uh, politician by the name of Abdul Hamid II. He tries to modernize the empire so as to save it. And he also begins to ruthlessly repress groups. We see the first massacre, mass massacres of Christians in Ottoman history under his reign. What happens in 1908? So uh, earlier I had mentioned the young Ottomans. These were yes. these Muslim intellectuals who advocated for a constitution and parliament and were pretty successful in getting it. They were successful. The young Turks took many of the ideas of the young Ottomans, the idea of the fatherland, the idea of patriotism, the, the hope to save the empire, plus some of the progressive enlightenment ideals, but they dropped religion. So the young Turks were not a religious force. They weren't Turks either. So the founders of the young Turk movement were Kurds and Albanians and other peoples, but they're called the young Turks. So because Abdul Hamid II had canceled the parliament, canceled the constitution, shut down the parliament, opposition from very different um, you know, sectors of society began to coalesce. And one of them we call the Young Turks. These people called themselves progressives and revolutionaries, and they didn't want just to have the constitution and parliament again, but they wanted to completely change the empire. And in 1908, they had always been acting behind the scenes, of course, in a repressive state. They were revolutionaries who were underground. In 1908, they revealed themselves and came out in military rebellion and battling against some of the Sultan's forces. We see a generational divide between older officers and these young Turks who are trained in all these new military academies, ironically established by Abdul Hamid II. So in 1908, they come out and they have something which is remembered as a revolution, although it really wasn't a revolution, but they force Abdul Hamid II to reinstate the constitution and to reopen parliament. Now, a year later, in 1909, there is a counter-revolution. And in many ways, that counter-revolution was more important. The counter-revolution was waged by the supporters of Abdul Hamid II, various Islamists, but also others who who were against the CUP. Uh, what I meant to say was the Young Turks who have become in this period, 1908, 1909, are, are an open political organization called the Committee of Union and Progress, the CUP. So their opponents fight back in this very violent counter-revolution. And the counter-revolution is more important because, because of the counter-revolution, the Young Turks depose Abdul Hamid II. And they bring about in that in a brief for a brief period of time all those ideas all those changes that people had been clamoring for since the early 19th century so after 1909 after they depose Abdul Hamid II then for the first time you see true equality between Muslims Christians and Jews you see Muslims Christians and Jews equally becoming members of government enlisting in enlisting in the army and taking full, playing their role in the elected, not just parliament, but other elected bodies. So, so after 1909, you do see a realization of these democratic and other impulses. 
we've reached a point now, haven't we, where I think it's fair to say that the other European powers are now hanging around like vultures waiting to pick off what they perceive as the dying carcass of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, we read that a lot in Western histories. When does the when does it first get used? When do people start talking about the Ottoman Empire as the sick man of Europe? Well, that comes from the, the Crimean War era, mm. um, as early as that. But I think what's more important is that the Ottomans are actually quite strong and vigorous. Now they're losing territory, they're losing battles, but the, you know nothing in history is is given. Nothing is nothing is predetermined. We don't know how things are going to turn out. In 1909, it looks like the Ottomans are moving toward uh, a smarter, more sophisticated, more democratic, more inclusive government. It seems that most of the um, this constituent groups, constituent peoples of the society are, are supporting that effort. That's how it seems. Now, the problem is something happens called the First and Second Balkan Wars. So, so this, this is, this, you know, again, the Ottomans, I, you know, if they had, had 10 more years after 1909, then maybe things would have turned out differently. But in 1912, a coalition of Balkan powers, former Ottoman provinces, now independent um, states, attacked the Ottomans. They think the Ottomans are going to be weak. And again, like the War of 1877, they drive almost to Istanbul. They take Adirne, which is, was the Ottoman second capital in Thrace. Now, because of this, a fellow by the name of Mehmet Talat Pasha in 1913 storms a cabinet meeting, shoots dead a couple of ministers, and takes power in a coup. So from 1913 to 1918, the Ottomans will be ruled, run. Of course, there's a sultan in the government, but actually from 1913 to 1918, there will be only a couple of men making all the key decisions for the empire. Mehmet Talat Pasha is one of them. And the, the empire is ruled under a state of emergency for those five years, those five crucial years. The Ottomans are able to recover quickly and they're able to, well, recover some territory in the second Balkan war in 1913. However, they lose Salonika. Now, Salonika today, of course, is this, you know, the second biggest city in Greece. Um, but at that time, Salonika was seen as a heart of the empire. Istanbul as well, but, but the empire, these men, these young Turks saw Southeastern Europe where they were from as the heart of the empire. Again, this takes us back to in the earlier part of the, my book when I talk about the Ottomans seeing themselves as Romans. This mm. carries through all the way to the 20th century. They see themselves as Southeastern European inheritors of the Romans, as Europeans. So they lose Salonika. And for them, this is an absolute traumatic moment. Salonika was the birthplace of Mustafa Kemal, who would become Ataturk, the father, as he's called, the father of modern Turkey, the, the one who helped, who, who, who led the establishment of the modern Turkish Republic in 1923. These other men come from this region, they lose it. And this causes them to somewhat kind of lose their minds because they, they, they lose the fatherland. And now in 1913, they're going to have to think about, well, where is the fatherland now? And who belongs to it? And what kind of an empire? And who should be in it? They begin to turn against the Greeks. They begin to promote boycotts against Ottoman Greek merchants. 
they begin to expel hundreds of thousands of Greek Ottoman subjects from Ottoman territories into ever-expanding Greece. So you see a, a worsening of relations. Muslims are being massacred in Southeastern Europe and, and their survivors are fleeing into the Ottoman Empire and they want revenge. Muslims being massacred by the Russians, Russians um, are fleeing into the empire. Their, their survivors, their descendants, they want revenge. So after 1913, you see, you see a very different um, vision at top, very different than the way it was in 1909. It's mad, isn't it? Um, right, okay. Why do you put it down in a nutshell for us? Why does Turkey get involved in the First World War? What does it stand to gain? Is it, um, there, there's a certain um, way in which every country that gets involved thinks that they've got something to gain for it, or at the very least, like I'm thinking of Italy, thinks that they can't afford not to get involved in it um, because of the peace conference that's going to come at the end. So where does Turkey fit into all of these concepts? Well, the Ottoman Empire had very close cultural and diplomatic and economic relations with Germany. Mm. So the Ottomans had already been sending young men to be trained as officers in Potsdam at the Prussian Military Academy. German instructors were very influential in the new Ottoman military academies in the Ottoman Empire. And there's some very important figures. The German Kaiser visited Istanbul twice, famously gifting this, this fountain um, in the heart of, of the old city. So there were these ties also. And well, Enver Pasha, who was one of the three very important ministers who ran the country during the First World War, he had been, um, I believe he was the military attache in Berlin. And he was quite the media star there. There were Enver cigarettes, for example. It was a brand of cigarette. So there were these close ties. There also were ties, of course, with Britain and France. But they, 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 they found these ties. Also, of course, the railway, the Baghdad to Berlin railway. So, so these ties made it natural for them to side with Germany. And again, Germany um, was, I mean, think again, what we've been talking about this whole hour was Russia, right? We're talking about Russia and Germany during the first world war. And then it's not the subject of the book, but during the second world war, Germany would tell Turkey will defeat your traditional enemy, Russia. And this was, this was the promise Germany also gave in, in the First World War era, that they would help. Because again, Russia is occupying uh, Ottoman territory. Russia is the main enemy of the Ottomans. We talk about Gallipoli, um, rightly so, as a massive humiliating uh, disaster for the Entente powers. When you go to Turkey, it's a point of pride, isn't it? This is a great power tried to invade the Ottoman Empire and failed miserably. When they take to the battlefield, there's that certain racist white assumption that brown people aren't as good as fight at fighting as the rest of us. Um, but Turkey really, or the Ottoman Empire really does uh, show them up for that opinion, doesn't it? Well, this was, this was an incredible um, effort and it, it, very important for the First World War because the British and the French thought that they would just quickly be able to pass through there and take Constantinople and then end the war quickly. That was the, that was the hope. Little did they know that half a million men would be sacrificed on both sides. And it wasn't, it was, you know, this bogged down trench warfare, disease, um, naval warfare, 
lasted, lasted a long time, it kept the British and French bogged down, but the Ottomans came out of it uh, successfully, which was, which was important because again, if the British and French and the, you know, the Anzacs, the Australians, the New Zealanders, also they had a lot of Indian troops as well, colonial troops. If they had taken the Straits, then they would have, they would have taken Istanbul and that would have absolutely been the end of the, the dynasty right there. Or we forget, we forget how much of the First World War was fought, not just in France, but fought in the rest of the world, Africa, Asia, and the Ottoman Empire. We forget about that. Well, there's the scale of the scale of the um, front in the Caucasus, the size of the forces doing battle, the Russian and Turkish forces doing battle um, right. along those borders are immense, and we don't know anything about them in the English. Not only they're immense, but they also they kept the British and the French and the Germans, um, you know, bogged down for years. None of those three powers thought that the war would go on so long and cause so many casualties. So it was, it was for years that this, this continued in the East. And that's, that's, we don't think about that too much. Of course, the Imperial War Museum here in London, it has an outstanding exhibit on the First World War. It focuses, of course, mostly on, on what was happening in France and in Germany. But if we think about it, the Ottoman Empire suffered a greater casualty rate, we think of proportion, not numbers, but proportionally than any other country, just about any other country or any other empire in the First World War, in terms of soldiers, civilians, people died through obviously battle, also through disease, starvation, famine, and th there was also the genocide that while all this is going on, the Ottomans also perpetrate against one of their own subject peoples, the Armenians. Let's ask you about this, because um, it's still a massively contentious issue. If you ask the Turks now, there was no genocide. There's even a monument to the Turks that were murdered by the Armenians, um, as if they're trying to present it as having happened the other way round. There was a genocide. There were hundreds of thousands of Armenians killed um when you look at the methods of their killing it's it's a blueprint for the holocaust everything the nazis are doing in the 30s and 40s to people um a lot of it's being done in the first world war well what i point out in the book is that this is the first genocide committed by a european empire that begins on european soil so the genocide begins on the on the 24th of april 1915 when the ottomans arrest around 300, mostly male, couple women, leading cultural, religious, and political figures from the Armenian community. And most of them are killed. This is where it all begins. It's also the case that German generals and soldiers had a role to play in the genocide. Uh, also German diplomats also um, helped the Ottomans. So, so this, is, this makes it European, part of the story that we always forget to tell about European history, about when genocide began in history. Now, you, now it's not true that all Turks deny this. The, the, the Turkish government denies this, but there are some really very good Turkish and Kurdish and other historians from Turkey who have, of course, conducted research and, and have written very openly about this. I like to say that the Armenian genocide is one of the most well-documented events in Ottoman history. And by this, I mean, and I'm not trying to be you know, um, flippant, but Let's just, let's ignore for a moment all of the Armenian survivor stories. Let's ignore all of the 
evidence that the American and, and other missionaries provided. And if we just look at the autobiographies of the perpetrators, if we look at their letters, if we look at the telegrams sent, if we look at, and I have it here, um, if we look at the, the, the notebook of Talat Pasha, which has been published in Turkish, mm. um, you know, they recorded what they did. Talat Pasha gives figures, how many Armenians there were, how many he deported, and how many were there after the deportations. It's very clear. And also, so if we just take also the trial, trials were held in 1919 by the opponents of the CUP. We look at those trial records. We look at all the evidence that the prosecutors put together to trial these, try these men in absentia who had fled to Germany. It's a massive amount of evidence showing that they aim to annihilate the Armenian population of the, of the empire. So why won't the Turkish government acknowledge that it happened? Well, you know, it's also in this country. Now there's debate in this country about the atrocities that British forces committed in Kenya or in, uh, you name it, Malaysia or in India. There are, you know, in this country, you know, we discuss these things, but you could ask how much of this truth about British atrocities makes it into school textbooks or official apologies. Now, of course, we've, we've in this country, we've come a pretty long way, but much more could be done. Now in Turkey, they're not going to admit to genocide ever. And this is because it would undermine so much of modern Turkish history. So when you kill, you know, 800,000 or so people and you take their land, you take their livestock, you take their factories, you take their fields, you take their vineyards, you take their shipyards, you take their homes, you get what I'm saying, you take their churches, all that stuff, all that loot went in to, to the pockets of the people who founded the Turkish Republic. So they're not, no, never going to want to give reparations. They're the two richest families in Turkey, one of them for sure, their money comes from looted Armenian wealth. So, so that's part of it. The other part is that the fact that Mustafa Kemal, the one who established the Turkish Republic in 1923, the men around him and his government ministers into the 1930s, these were men who had a direct role in the genocide, whether deporting people or murdering people or overseeing their destruction. So, so they'd have to rewrite the narrative of the Republic. They'd have to make all these heroes into villains. And, and wh which country is willing to do that voluntarily other than if they're occupied by a foreign power such as Germany after the Second World War. Uh, it's, 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 it's not gonna happen. That's a really good answer, I like that. Um, okay, Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, is on the wrong side in terms of who wins the war. And is this the beginning of the end? Does, is it inevitable that the Ottoman Empire will cease to exist after the armistice? Well, that's a good question because something new is going to emerge because yeah. you do have a Sultan in Istanbul, Istanbul's occupied and the Sultan is going along with the, the foreign occupiers. Much of the country is occupied by the French, the Italians. There's a, the Greek army is, thanks to the British, is moving west to east. So, so this is the actual situation. And the empire before this, what was left of the empire had been devastated by war, disease, famine, genocide. So, you know, something else was going to emerge. Now, what emerged was 
there was a resistance movement led by the former members of the CUP, the Young Turks, and Mustafa Kemal, which united the Muslim peoples of Anatolia, what is today Turkey, against these foreign occupiers and against local Christians. So you see a proto-Muslim movement. Now, what they're going to do is not clear in 1918. They're going to resist the Sultan. They see him as a, a traitor, accepting what the occupiers want. They're going to create something new. But it, you know, we don't know in 1918 that they're going to create a nation state. We don't know that it's going to be, it's not going to, you know, in 1918, it's Turks and Kurds mainly who are fighting against their own regime, the Ottomans, the last uh, Sultan, and fighting against foreign occupiers. And again, 1918, we don't know what's going to come out. Now, what happens after four years of warfare and politicking, the dynasty falls, and what emerges is a, again, a Muslim nationalist movement in what is today Turkey, that in 1923 will declare itself a republic and declare itself secular. And within two years, turn on the Kurds. So by 1925, this new regime is massacring the very people who helped them establish their rule. Mad, isn't it? So how does the Ottoman Empire crumble? What brings it to its knees? It's the, it's the war, it's siding with Germany, it's the genocide, it's the internal struggle between those groups who support the dynasty and those groups ultimately successful who are opposed to the dynasty, who see it as weak and a, and a sellout. And so then, as I end the book, I don't move beyond uh, the end of the dynasty. The last sultan is, is put on a British warship and uh, sails away, basically. Where does he end up? Well, these, these people, well, what, what's going to happen is the new republic is going to expel all members of the dynasty. Okay, and this uh, is 1923, isn't it? Well, that's, well, yeah, with these things, with the exact year it happens, I don't recall, but they're going to expel all members of the dynasty, take all their property uh, and take all the palaces and so on, convert them into museums. And so first they'll get rid of the, they'll, they'll detach the sultanate from the caliphate. Okay, because that's, that's divorcing the religious link that puts the sultans on the throne. Well, that's, that's, that's divorcing these two roles. A yeah. sultan is a secular ruler. A uh, caliph is a symbolic religious leader. So there were like a separation of church and state, isn't it? Well, they were embodied in, in, in the sultan. But in 19, um, they, they, first they would, abolish, they would separate the two and then they would abolish the sultanate. And then eventually the, in 1924, so very quickly, they would abolish the caliphate as well. And that last caliph ends up, ends up in, in France in exile. He'll try to return, doesn't work. He'll end up in um, Nazi-occupied Paris when he, where he passes away. It really is a, a massive book. And I'm not, I'm not talking about like the size of it in terms of the scope that you've covered is quite incredible. Um, we started our conversation several weeks ago now with another episode where we were talking about the early Middle Ages and we've come all the way through to the 20th century. Mark, thank you so much for giving us such a brilliant overview of the Ottoman Empire. Thank you for the interview. I enjoyed it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. 
So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.